Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I often think of my life as like I'm a curator of great moments. That's the way I sometimes try to think of it. Because, you know, 90% of moments are going to be boring. But if you can find those few moments and just collect them like a curator and keep them in your mental museum, that's a lovely way to live. Yeah. So, and did you learn this idea of being a curator of moments by doing this research on gratitude? I am going to say yes, if it sells more books, but <laughs> but I actually had thought of it earlier. And does gratitude really work? Does it really make you feel better? Like scientists say, it reduces anxiety, it makes you feel content and have more well-being. I am just one data point, but for me, it is huge because my default mode is to be annoyed at the world. I've never seen you cranky or annoyed. Well, that's because I'm so good at faking gratitude until I actually feel it. You know, this whole idea of fake it till you feel it. I've got AJ Jacobs once again on the podcast. AJ, it's such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I love being here. You are a hero and I am very grateful, which I suppose we'll be talking about. We're going to talk a lot about gratitude because that's the topic of your next book. Every one of your books is always, here's what they always are. They're always high concept, very broad umbrella concept, which you could divide into a million different pieces with so many different stories. And then you, and then your technique number two is you immerse yourself in the topic. You just don't, you don't just quote scientific studies or interviews. You actually become the main character of your topic. And then you just look at it from, so, you know, and this is the related to the umbrella part. You look at it from so many angles. It's angles I've never thought of. Like when you did It's All Relative, your most recent book, you not only talk about how the whole world's related, blah, 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 which is kind of not a new concept, but you throw the world's largest family reunion. I mean, how many, how many relatives have you now found for yourself through your own exper- experiments in genealogy? Well, that, that reunion featured 10,000 of my cousins, including James Altucher, who gave I, a wonderful I spoke speech. I know. Right after I Dr. Oz, that. who's also been on this podcast. <laughs> Um, so yeah, about 10,000. I mean, but of course I've been able to figure out how I'm related to about 
seven billion people because we're all related. And, uh, and how many do you, have you actually figured out the tree between? About 10,000. About 10,000. Because 10, I remember at first we knew we were third cousins because 23andMe told right. us we were. Exactly. But I think now um, we have the actual branches on Ancestry.com yeah. that at least show us related in some way or other. I know. It's like, I think we've got great, great, great grandpa Elysier or, or something. So, so, uh, someone thank you somewhere back. In some poor, forgotten serfdom. Oh, they had such terrible lives. That's another thing I learned from my new book and from my old book. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast. This the good old days were terrible. They just sucked. Yeah. And thank God. I mean, with all our problems now, that's what I try to keep in mind when I read the newspaper and how like all the annoying news. Like, at least we didn't live in 1800 when like this stuff. Much worse was happening then. It was just the worst. Like what? Well, like let's, say, Pinker, let's say a typical family in in 1820 in in the United States of America. Well, like you know, half of my kids would be dead for for starters. Uh, and uh, you know, you had Stephen Pinker has a great book on this called Enlightenment. Now, have you read that? I, I have, and, there, and but there's a lot of uh, pros and cons to his book. Some people like it, some people don't. It's very controversial. It's true. I have some issues with it, but the overall thesis that life sucked, I think, is all too true. I mean, you just look at medicine. Like fifty years, about sixty years ago, if you went to the doctor, you were probably doing more harm to yourself than good. And when I read the encyclopedia for one of my books, I remember reading about the tobacco enema, which was a popular uh, cure for whatever ailed you. You had a little stomach ache. They would actually take a hose, stick it up your butt, and then blow smoke. You know the phrase, blow smoke up your ass? That's where it started. You, they would blow smoke up your butt, and it was supposed to cure you. Wait, the, it... it it doesn't, because that's, <laughs> that's what you that's, do every night. That's why I don't go to a doctor. I just <laughs> take tobacco enemas every day. Oh, well, but by the way, that's that that in, um, the, that book was called the Know It All, right? And you read the encyclopedia from A to Z, and again, brilliant, high level, broad concept. But it gives you fuel for so many stories. You could you could tell the stories of your life, like what what's it like, you know, reading this gigantic set of twenty six books. And you can tell stories about every little thing in the encyclopedia that you didn't know about and how it relates to your current life. Like it's, like it's a brilliant idea for a book and you wonder why did anyone think about it? And you, you, your creative process, I always just find fascinating how you come up with these high concepts, immerse yourself in it, and then you have so much material for a book by breaking it down well, into sub stories. Thank you, yeah. I mean, I try to take something and just push it to the ridiculous extreme. And that is. And, and literally. You, and, do, you, you get very literal. I literally. do like to get literal. Your, your humor is very literal. Like uh, when Ann Coulter uh, said on TV, um, just how many fucking Jews are there? <laughs> You, I remember you wrote a post that got like 20,000 shares on Facebook where you mathematically figured out how many Jews were having, having sex at that intercourse. moment. Yeah, I was interested. How many fucking Jews are there? And it depends how you define fucking Jews. Like, are they fucking at the time? Or are they like at the moment? Or are they just sexually active in general? So yes, I think uh, taking things literally, I do love that. And it's interesting, you brought up why had no one thought of that before? I do think I have met a guy who said, and he's a writer, he said he had written the proposal for a book about reading the encyclopedia 
and he was about to send it when he read in some book publishing magazine that I had sold this book. So a lot of it is luck. And that that was actually in the encyclopedia. You know, Elisha Gray, have you ever heard of Elisha Gray? No, no that's because he filed the patent for the telephone uh, about four hours after Alexander Graham Bell. Ah, uh, so that other we we we'd be we would be talking. he would be like a trillionaire now, yeah. and instead Alexander Graham Bell. Right. Actually, how much money did Alexander Graham Bell make from the telephone? Oh no, he made a buttload. He did fine. Like, because there were all these lawsuits. Because Gray was like, I had the idea too, but like that's a lesson. Just don't like if you're gonna do your errands, do them after you file the pat- patent. <laughs> Like he probably went to the grocery store and was like, oh, I'll do this and then I'll file a patent. No, you gotta sometimes, you just really gotta do it. So um, anyway, I do think luck plays a huge part in life. But but I think your process of creativity supersedes luck because let's say the other guy did the book, The Know-It-All, okay, no problem. You would just come up with another high concept thing and do it. Well, it's true. I mean, that's where one of my great inspirations is James Altucher. Who talks about? Who's he? <laughs> he's this weird-looking dude who uh, has odd ideas, and one of them is just the idea of brainstorming multiple ideas because ninety-eight percent of them are going to be crap, and that's what I find. It's a numbers game, you know. I have people say, "How do you come up with your ideas?" I'm like, "Well, most of my ideas suck. You just don't see them because they I don't pursue them or they don't get accepted." But if you come up with enough ideas, some of them are going to be gems. And you know, and you know, a couple of things there. One is I remember back in 2013, uh, we got together for lunch, and you were telling me uh, this was like the summer of 2013. You were telling me about another idea you're working on, which is to be a venture capitalist for a year. And instead, you did. It's all relative, right? Uh, which came. What did it's all relative came out about a year ago? Or yeah, exactly. So so. So from 2013 to 2017, you ended up working on It's All Relative. Do you ever feel pressure to uh, uh, come up with books faster or else people are gonna, do you, ever, do you ever feel irrelevant if you're not producing every day or every month or every well, week? Well, I do get, it's interesting because yeah, I think my publisher would like me to produce one, one a year. I am, luckily, I, um, I look like I'm prolific because I had a book come out last year and I'm having one come out in November. So, but the secret Which is- Which we're gonna talk about in a second. Right. The secret is I had been working on that one for four years. So uh, it was like three years overdue. So even though I look prolific, I am actually way behind. But do you, but, but do you ever get anxious like if you don't- Oh, I totally Because I, do. Do, I get anxious if I don't produce podcasts, articles, books, all the time basically. Well, you are like, yeah. I should study you more for your productivity and, and genius. No, but I, maybe my stuff is not as high quality as your, what is it, six New York Times bestsellers now? I Well, but I would say, uh, first of all, it is. And secondly, I mean, maybe quantity over quality, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should just start vomiting out more stuff and try, instead of trying to sweat it. I actually, I once did an article on how to do everything faster. And one of the people I interviewed was this uh, thriller writer, whose name I totally forget now, but who had come out with like 200 books. And he was, yeah, he, you've probably heard this, perfection is the enemy of 
uh, productivity. Like he was just like, I just, I don't care. I just like vomit it out. And if it's uh, if it's great, then that's fine. But if it's just slightly above average, that's fine too. Does he make money? From the thriller books? Oh yeah, no, he was like a multi-billionaire. He was, I forget because his name. Because if you have 200 books out there, even if they only sell like $500 worth a month on average each one, it's $100,000 a month. Right, there is definitely something to quantity over quality. So, so with someone like that, I, I don't know who you're talking about, but my guess is uh, from people I know who write 10,000 words a day or for, for the few times that I've written over 10,000 words in a day, like finishing a book quickly, um, if you outline everything in detail first, then you could just, you know, it's almost like you could turn your brain off and just start writing. I am a huge outliner. Yeah, I really, I find that so much more productive. So I know exactly, I mean, there are some writers who are like, oh, I'm channeling uh, my muse and I don't know where this is going. Oh, I know exactly where it's going. I mean, I may take some detours along the way, but I think for efficiency, outlining is a beautiful thing. That said, I once interviewed a Daily Show writer who said Which something. One? Uh, Kevin, oh man, great guy. I don't know. All right. <laughs> I know some uh, Daily Show writers, I don't know others. All right. Well, this guy, Kevin, whose name, last name, I forget, I'm sorry. But he said, I said, what is your secret to comedy? And he said his secret was to surprise himself while writing. And I was like, that is so interesting. It makes no sense because how can you surprise yourself? Like you, but, but it also, I understood it because I have been writing sometimes when I'm like, out of nowhere, I just write some weird end to a sentence and it makes me laugh. Well, well I think, and we had this um, discussion with Tom Papa, who's a, a well-known stand-up comedian. And his basic approach to coming over the punchline is to, to, to punchline is funnier if it's completely unexpected. So if he's if that goes along with if he could surprise himself, he's probably going to surprise everyone. Mm, right. And I think that's true for. I mean, you're a humorist. You, you're you're not necessarily a stand-up comic, but your your writing is always funny, even though there's a lot of like value and and information and so on in there. I think you have a humorous way of presenting things. But I think the literal literal way of looking at things is often unexpected because people don't normally look at things so literally or or switch kind of the grammatical meaning of a sentence to be to be funnier um and it's all relative uh your last book what i mean i would say you came up with things that were unexpected like uh just dis just discussing your adventures of trying to see you know george h w bush is unexpected that you would be a related to him and b he would agree to see you because you were you said you were cousins with him, and so that got you through the door. Right. Well, I think what you said. I like to take on huge topics because then you can go in all different directions. Uh, I mean, this the the family book had one on polyamory, which is fascinating. I love polyamory. I could never do it because uh, it's too stressful. Like the scheduling, these people. You should see their Google calendars. It's like a mosaic because they've got to like figure out all these different boyfriends and girlfriends. So anyway, I love being able to go down these alleys. Yeah, it's it's funny. I one time I was visiting a, visiting with a friend of mine who's um, polyamorous, and his main girlfriend was out of town, and he says he's exhausted <laughs> because like all day long he has to go around the city. <laughs> Visiting his other girlfriend. It is. It is. I can't imagine. And the one thing I could not wrap my mind around is, and I think it's a good goal to have, but it's the opposite of jealousy. It's it's an emotion called compersion that they talk about, where you are happy 
when your partner, your sexual partner is happy. So you are happy when they are having sex with someone else that they like. And I like trying to imagine if my wife was having sex with you, <laughs> I, I think you're a terrific guy, but it would drive me nuts. Like I, I'm not evolved enough to experience conversion. Well, well, okay, so here's the question and then we'll, we will get to other topics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> here's the question is that, um, is it you said evolved enough? Is it an evolutionary thing to be polyamorous, or is it an evolutionary thing to be monogamous? Because the polyamorous people will say, "Oh no, it's better to be polyamorous because then no man knows if he's the father, so every man in the village will help take care right. of the kid." That is true. But, yeah. but the monogamous side says, "No, it's good when." The, the man knows he's the father because he'll kill for that kid. Mm, right. And so I don't know. I don't, it feels to me that the natural thing is monogamy just because like you, I would get upset if I wasn't in, right. if my relationship was not monogamous, I think it, I, I wouldn't be able to handle well, it. Well, my totally unscientific take is that actually like polygamy seems natural. Like when you have a chimp, you have the alpha chimp and he's having sex with eight women. Women. <laughs> <laughs> Women chips. Female chips. <laughs> I like that I've been trained so much to to be like in this post Me Too era that I call female chimps women, but that uh, <laughs> female giraffes women, right? Women. Uh, but anyway, I uh, I think that might be natural, but I think it's also a bad bad for society. Like I would not want to live in a society where you know. Um, uh, Bill Gates gets you know a hundred women, and uh, losers like me get none. Like I think that would be an unhappy society. So I think that monogamy it's not necessarily natural, but it's actually a good solution for society where well, it's like more equal. I do think we do live in the society where a quote unquote Bill Gates gets a hundred women. And He's not a great example. I was trying well, to like, think of like, Elon Musk. He's a little more. Or, uh, or Will Chamberlain has had claims to have had sex with twenty thousand women. Right. So, which uh, again, the and, logistics on that are astounding. But 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 Will Chamberlain's clearly like a super alpha, you know, human being. Right. And you know, simple beta males like us are just please, just will will there be one woman out there who will grace us with their presence for the rest of our lives like we're we're grateful for monogamy it's true and some people do get none right so no that is i agree that i i mean i almost think it's like socialism it's like slightly we're talking about this from the man's point of view too i mean women also have the same right yeah even if it were melinda gates had uh you know access to a hundred men that might not be good for other women so yeah i agree so I want to hit two major topics. One is your, I guess this was your first book, The Year of Living Biblically, which I still think is probably the book you're most well known for. Right. This is where you spent a year of your life living according to the exact literal tenets of the Bible. And you grew up on the cover as you with a beard and a staff and in a robe. And you have all sorts of stories about how you stoned an adulterer in, in Central Park. And it was, it was, it was super funny. And, uh, you know, it kind of propelled your, your, your writing career because uh, it was such a massive bestseller. But more importantly, even, it became a TV show. It did. And in our society, having a TV show is like, 
that's like kind of almost like the reward for writing. I think that's how it's like considered. <laughs> and so in your TV show, it was not just a cable show, it was like a primetime broadcast. It was on CBS. What what day of the week was it on? It was Monday nights at 9.30. And actually they're still gonna run the rest of the episodes, five episodes in the summer. But well, right, so foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. You got canceled after how many episodes? Eight episodes. And I was overjoyed. To you were be overjoyed canceled. that it was canceled. Yes, because I thought I loved the people doing it, but it was just the exact wrong message. It, it was, was not written like your book at all. No, it was. I mean, I blame CBS mostly uh, because they just took it and made it into like this bland tapioca crap. I mean, we knew we were in trouble when the the main character uh, in in my book, Growing My Beard, was a big part of it because the Bible says you cannot shave the corners of your beard. So I didn't know where the corners were. So I just let the whole thing grow and I looked crazy. Like I looked like Ted Kaczynski crazy. And, uh, and I scared people. And uh, it, within the first couple of weeks, CBS was like, let's not grow the beard, it might scare people off. It might scare off our nice Midwestern viewers. And I was like, oh, that's a sign. That's a sign that this is gonna be a piece of crap. <laughs> so Yeah, that, because if they're gonna cut corners on that, literally. Literally, exactly. Uh, where, what else did, you, did they cut? Well, for one thing, the main character was no longer Jewish. He was- Yes, and they converted me. I'm like an Upper West Side Jew and they made him a lapsed Catholic. So I got, I got my foreskin res restored. And I love the guy who played me. He was on Mad Men. He, he played um, uh, Peggy's boyfriend on Mad Men. Oh yeah, you're right. I remember that now. Yeah, he yeah. was great. Uh, Jay Ferguson is his name. But, uh, but yeah, they wouldn't let, they, I, I wanted in my book, I wanted to show that if you follow the Bible, literally, you are crazy. So don't, so don't follow, don't say, oh, Bible says homosexuality is a sin because the Bible also says to stone your kid if he's stubborn. The, you know, it also says to kill astrologers. You know, it says crazy, crazy stuff. So don't take the Bible literally. And instead, the TV show is sort of a commercial for mainstream religion like oh if you are uh, if you follow the bible you'll be a better person and you know that you will treat your neighbors more kindly and so, bring so it was, them pies it was, it was kind of like the exact opposite of seinfeld where the the the, the main um guidance Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld will give to all the writers was nobody can learn anything ever exactly. and in living biblically there would be a lesson learned. The main character would learn right. uh, by the end of each episode. Yeah, I remember Larry Davis said, no hugs, no learning. And I think that this show definitely had both hugs and H learning. Hugs and learning. And, and also they were learning the things that I didn't approve of. Like, you know, I wanted, I wanted it to be much, much weirder than it was. It like, was what, like what would, like, didn't, first off, first off, what's the process? So, so, Somebody came to you after Living Biblically came out and said, hey, can we buy the option rights to your book? Yeah, it had been optioned about six or seven times. Dif different companies? By different companies, and it was going to be a movie. At one point, Marlon Wayans was attached to play me, which was an interesting choice. Uh, and then another time, they were going to do a reality show. Um, and That's the, a lot of work. Oh, yeah. Well, the, here, can I give you like a... a 
45 second story that I think encapsulates yeah. show business. So when the reality show production company came to me, they were like, oh, we want to show, it's going to be very subtle. We'll show the good of religion and the bad of religion. Uh, it'll be very intellectual. And cut to, a year later, we're in the offices of Spike TV, like the men's channel, yeah. and then they're going, they're pitching um, the Bible Olympics. So it'd be like 12 hunky guys uh, running down a mountain carrying tablets, like who can? <laughs> like which that's what it evolved into. Moses. Yeah, that's what it had evolved into. And, and, the, and the thing is, Olympics. it evolved so slowly into that that you're actually in the room trying to pitch this. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, hey, this is a wait a second. Uh, yeah, it's like the classic frog in the boiling water. You don't even notice it's happening until you're like, holy crap. This is terrible. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then it, it got optioned by Johnny. But, but, but every time it got optioned, you got paid, right? I did. I did. So, uh, so what was like the average payment or one of the payments for to option a, a best-selling book like that? Well, in the beginning, it got lower and lower every time. So it was 50000 the first time, which I was happy with, of course. Uh, and then by the end, it was like 2000 and I was just doing, I was like, there's no way this is going to make it onto television. I just thought it was a fun lark that, because uh, Johnny Galecki from Big Bang uh, had optioned it. And I was like, oh, I'll go out to dinner with Johnny Galecki. I'll take a selfie and it'll be funny and it'll be over. And then it just kept going and going. And I'm like, oh my God, what is happening? So so, the, so then once, once he optioned it, what does he do? He finds... A, a production company to make it, and he then they had produce. his own production company. They found a writer um, who was actually brilliant. This is what's so crazy, I think, about television. I listened to him on a couple of podcasts. This writer, and I was like rolling on the floor. I was like, "This guy is so smart and so weird and funny." And then CBS just steamrolled all of the uh, brilliance out of him. Like, how how did they do that? Okay, oh, so just in terms of process, so. They find a writer. Do they find actors yet? The production uh, company? First they write a script. Then if that's approved by CBS, then they... Oh, so they had... When do they pitch it to CBS? Well, they pitch it very early on before they've even written a script to all of the networks. And actually all of them wanted it, but they went with CBS. Then they write a script. If the script is approved, then they get money to cast and make a pilot, which is crazy expensive like a million and a half sometimes like three million I don't and know you how get much. as a you're, you must be a producer at this point do you get like a little piece I of that no because I'm a terrible businessman so I was not a producer um, didn't you have an agent negotiate your I, rights yeah, contract I love I, but I actually am very I, I don't really want to be a producer because I don't have control like I think what you do is ingenious because you know you've got your blog you've got your podcast you have no one controlling you and editing you, which is beautiful in the way of the future. And like this idea of a hundred people, you know, too many cooks just make a really crappy well, right. stew. Because in between you and the book, which you wrote and created a hundred percent of, in between you and the final product of a TV show was the the guy who actually bought the option, then the production company, then 
probably three or four levels of studio executives. Like he probably, oh no, probably an agent first. He probably, the, the production company probably has an agent who actually is the one who pitches it to the studios. Then the various hierarchy within the studios all the way up to the CEO of CBS probably right. is involved. Sure. And then there's, to actually get an episode made, there's writers, assistant writers, you know, other people involved in production, studio executives involved in production. So there's like probably 20 or 30 people in between you and the final product. Yeah, and it just, uh, it just diluted it and diluted it until it was just this watery gruel. <laughs> I will add, you know, we've had one of the actors from Living Biblically on the podcast, Tony Rock, excellent guy. Love him. Just love that guy. Uh, such a funny person and a great. He was great on the show, actually. He yeah, was, uh, he was very good, and and I think if the writer had been allowed to do what he wanted, I, I think it would have been really interesting. But. So what happens? He pr- pr- writes an episode, and then CBS just has like fifty notes. Or- yeah, exactly. And I wasn't privy to all of that, so I'm slightly speculating, but. It does seem that way. Like there's producers' notes, then there's executive notes, then there's censors' notes, and you can't, you know, it just gets. G- given that it's such a cliche that their notes are bad, why do they give notes at all? <laughs> it's a great question. Well, when you get to a certain level, you can just say, screw off. Like, you know, I think that's what Modern Family does, which I think is, it makes yeah, it or, better. Yeah, or, or Louis C.K. did it with Louis. Oh right! He, yeah. he didn't allow Fox to see it until the day before it aired, <laughs> and then they, then they said, "No, we can't do that," and he would just walk away. And then they keep coming back. No, 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 it's okay. I like that. Although he he had his own problems. He has his own problems, but he that's how he did get right. his his show on the air. Um. So so the the day did you have a sense? Look, it's still. CBS primetime, it was still showing, what What was the audience every week? About 5 million. 5 million. I now, know. and again, we were just talking before the podcast how shows in the 70s and 80s, when there was only three broadcast channels and no cable really, a t- the typical average medium show would get over 20 million viewers. Amazing. Now zero shows, zero in all of broadcast TV get, get, I think only one gets over 10 million per week, which is like CSI. Um, and then everything else gets below ten million, so nothing gets twenty million anymore. Right. So, so five million, which which in the seventies and eighties would have been an instant failure, five million was good. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was. Uh, I mean, it was decent for CBS. It wasn't big enough. They needed a breakout show. Did you ever win a- the week? Meaning you had the best oh, no. of CBS, ABC, NBC? Nope, no, nope, no. Nope. What were you up against? Uh, well, I can't remember, but whatever it was, they they crushed us. And then and then what was the percentage? Oh, it was a lot of the reality shows, like the American Idol and all that stuff. What what, what was the percentage that was um, uh, uh, iTunes of your shows? I can't remember. I got to look Amazon that up. Or Amazon or something else. Can I just tell you my favorite readings fact ever that I think says a lot about our society? The moon landing got a 93 share. That means seven percent of Americans were like, "Eh, I'd rather watch the Three Stooges." I mean, yeah, here's, I get it's black and white. I can't see what's going on. I'm not interested in the moon, men on the moon. That that's funny. And uh, and I think that's like you know when I think about Trump got nineteen percent of all Americans' votes. Like all, if you take all three hundred million plus, he got nineteen percent. And I'm like, of course he did. You've got seven percent of people 
who wouldn't watch the fucking moon landing because they wanted to watch Three Stooges. So it's very hard to, to get like, uh, you know, a completely rational society. It's, it's very hard to get 100% of people to agree to something, even exactly. if it's the most obvious thing in the world, like, right. the, like watching the moon, the landing, moon landing versus a, versus the Three Stooges. That right. would seem like an obvious decision. Like the greatest historical advance in human history versus three guys like poking each other in the face, which I honestly, I remember researching this. I think it was the uh, the Three Stooges. I don't think I'm making that up. Someone should look into that. But I think that was what it was up against. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. 
So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So bring this to your show, 5 million people seems like a lot of people to have seen, you know, something that you were initially involved in creating, but it's still only, you know, a little over 1%. It's less than 2% of the country right. watched your show each week. And that is nothing. On, on a major broadcast channel, which used to be the dominating way we would get all entertainment. It's now just a tiny fraction of how we get entertainment. Right. And listen, 5 million is a huge amount if that if they can monetize that properly, then uh, it would be great because I always think, uh, I think back to, you know, Tim Ferriss, our mutual friend who gets a lot of crap, but he is, he always told me like, um, you know, if you have 90% of people hate you, but like 10% really love you, that's 30 million people in America. That is a huge amount. So you don't have to appeal to everyone. And mm. I don't think you should even try. Uh, so they, yeah, that was a lesson. And I think that was part of the problem. They tried to appeal to everyone and they turned off most and, people. And also, you know, you look at why, why are things canceled so fast? Because you look at like Seinfeld. Seinfeld had mediocre ratings, I think until about season three. And finally 
it became a hit. Right. It wasn't a hit. Nobody knew about it. Like it was called the Seinfeld Chronicles season one. Like nobody really knew about it in the first couple of seasons. And then suddenly it became a hit because they get, let it run. Now, you know, you just only had eight episodes there and they canceled it. Right. You know, and, and five million a, a week wasn't enough. And I don't know, things, it seems like there's a, a, a tighter turnaround now on any kind of, like the, the lifespan of a creative work is gotten shorter and shorter. Oh, yeah. And I think that's in everything, like in uh, in books now. Like you got to open big, or else you know. You're... Yeah, by the third week, your book's dead. Yeah, exactly. It's I mean, crazy. if you don't make the bestseller list in the first week, it's probably not ever going to make the bestseller list. And uh, even YouTube videos, like something might get like a billion views. Like we were talking about Gangnam Style, you know, size PSY is uh, video got it was the first to get to a billion views, and then it just kind of like disappeared. Like nobody would even think of watching it now. Right. It's funny. And, and that's what, a billion views. That is amazing. But and, it also shows that YouTube, where people have the choice, more choice of what they can watch and there's so much more content, that really is where the eyeballs are so going. So are you doing anything with YouTube? We are probably going to try to make this podcast on YouTube. Oh, and we do we lovely. do the post-game analysis we're about to launch on, on YouTube. Okay, good. So, yeah, I want to analyze all the things I did wrong because I have a lot of criticisms already of my performance. I, 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 on your performance on this podcast? Yeah. All right, that'll be on the post-game analysis. Right, yeah. I um, would, uh, yeah. I so, would. were you disappointed at all when it got canceled? Because I'm sure, were you making money per episode at this point? Yeah, but not even that much. Because as I say, I'm a terrible businessman. But uh, I was, uh, I was only disappointed because my kids loved going to the set, which was a blast. And 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 no matter what you say, like that is a crazy experience to have this, you know, 200 people working on something that was in somewhat inspired by you and the fact that they you know you can compare like oh he's got um a goodfellas poster in his apartment i have a, i love the goodfellas too and isn't that funny so yeah that is the only sad part but overall i'm fine i'm actually mostly quite happy well you know it goes along with the fact though that like you're very much a self-starter. You've created your career in part by launching your career with this book. I mean, you launched it before by being, you know, writing for Esquire and, and getting a lot of experience writing, but the year of living biblically, it's, it still shows that books are events. And although I remember some of your articles that you've written over the years, the books are the ones that stand out. It's still important to have a book around. I do feel, yeah, even at because even though uh, books are read actually less than articles. Right. But the fact that you can have a book and have like a hundred articles written about that book, that is the multiplier effect. That's the way I think of it. Yeah, like even though like take that Ann Coulter Facebook post that we talked about earlier, even though that was shared ten thousand times and probably read hundreds and hundreds of thousands or even millions of times, probably your book, The Year of Living Biblically, or any of your books are probably read less than that post. It's still you're known from totally. Yeah, year of living there's biblically. still some legacy, something about a physical object that people like. Can I totally contradict myself on something? Yes, you, because you have my permission. We have talked about how important it is, like the singular authorial vision, and that's why I liked working in books as opposed to in my new book. I totally argue against that, so I'm a total uh, hypocrite, and uh, because in the new book, well. Yeah, should I just say yeah, about yeah. that? Yeah, so tell, tell us what the new book's about. All right, the new book is called Thanks a Thousand. And what I do is I go around the world thanking a thousand people who helped make my cup of coffee. 
So it could be any, it was the farmers. I went to Columbia, South America, but also the truck drivers, the people, the truck drivers couldn't do their job without the road. So I had to thank the people who paved the road. I had to thank the people who like made the asphalt for the pavement. And it's like, you know, I would just call people up. I would say, I know this sounds weird, um, but I want to thank you for making the pesticide that's in the warehouse where my coffee is stored so that my coffee doesn't have bugs in it. So, so I just want to examine the creative process that came up with this, this one idea. So A, you could have just written an article, right? And, you know, hey, gratitude is important, but don't forget that there are a lot of things that lead to you know, any one thing that you enjoy in life. And for instance, with coffee, here's a list of 30 people you could think of that were involved in creating your single cup of coffee. It, it, to some extent, that reminds me of the book, I Pencil, which talks like- Which you sent me, which I loved. It was a great, it was, it was like oh, I, my I book. I forgot I sent it to you. Yeah, you sent it to me and I was like, hey, this is exactly like my book, but without the gratitude part and with pencils instead it, of coffee. But but you you decided, okay, that was your first kind of, a big concept umbrella thing, which is that like everybody says, oh, you should think of three things you're grateful for, you know, at the end of the day, and that will make your life better. So instead of taking the, the you took this kind of cliche self help advice and expanded it to look at the many, many layers right. that are underneath that initial gratitude. So that's that kind of the high concept. Yeah, push it as far as you can. That's but, the way. And I will tell you, I thank my son for helping me come up with it because, you know, I had read all of the studies about gratitude and it makes you less depressed, it makes you sleep better, like, you know, tons of science behind it. Uh, and so I started to, this was a couple of years ago, I would say a prayer of Thanksgiving before my meal. But I'm an atheist, so a prayer was kind of weird. So I wouldn't thank God. So I would say, you know, I'd like to thank the farmer who grew these tomatoes and the trucker who drove the tomatoes to the store and the cashier who rang the tomatoes up. And my son was like, you know, Dad, those people aren't here. They can't hear you. Like, if you really care, you would go out and thank them in person. And I was like, that is an interesting idea. Yeah, because now... Your son gave you a way to picture how you can immerse yourself exactly. in the high concept story. Right. And not only that, you've also given yourself an opportunity to tell a thousand stories and then pick the best ones to make a book. So like exactly. you're gonna thank all these people and some of them, because you're actually traveling to like South America and then you're traveling to the where you're calling the PESA, you're gonna have stories right. to tell. Yeah. They're like a book ten, to write. it's basically structured. I thank a thousand people but I focus on the stories of 10 of them and the lessons I learned. Cause you know, I did learn like, like I loved the guy who actually chooses which coffee is at my coffee shop. A great guy named Ed Kaufman. And he- He's named Ed Kaufman. Ed, yeah, That's kind that, of funny for some that reason. Is, that is funny. You know what? I think His name I, chose his career. That's your next book. How exactly. many people where their names choose their careers? And you're like going to talk to everyone. Dentists all become dentists. Yeah. I had read a study about that. <laughs> so I don't know if that was uh, him, but he he would like, he showed me how to, to taste coffee, which is like the most ridiculous wine sommelier you've ever seen. So first you have to sip it. You have to, I mean, slurp it because you want the, the coffee to go all over your mouth because you have taste buds in your cheeks and in the roof of your mouth, so you got to get them all. So it's a, a, like a comically loud slurp, which I won't do because it might sound gross on, on radio. But then he would go, his face would light up and he would be like, this coffee tastes like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sensing hints of, uh, of honey crisp apple and, uh, you know, and maple syrup. And I would take a taste and I'd be like, 
I'm sensing coffee. This <laughs> tastes like coffee to me. Yeah, people, I, like I cannot tell the difference between the coffee I get at the cart on the corner or Starbucks coffee or the Keurig cup coffee or- right. I can't ever taste the difference between. And I take my coffee black. I can't take the tip. I can't taste the difference between any coffee. Well, I am mostly that way. But because of Ed, I was inspired. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna let the coffee sit on my tongue for five seconds. We're all busy, but five seconds I could spare, and just really focus on the the the, the texture and the sweetness and acidity, and you do begin to taste the difference. And that psychologists say that's such a big part of gratitude. This idea of savoring, of taking a moment and holding on to it as long as you can, uh, because otherwise life just goes by in a blur. Like, how, how do you do that? Like, how, let's say you're at a concert that you, a music concert that you really wanted to go to. Um, how do you savor the moment? That I would say you you choose a moment. You choose a moment to really focus on. So whether it's like. You know, uh, I don't go to many concerts, but whatever. The guitarist, you know, his final flourish and, he, you know, just admire the way his arm moves and just really go into detail on one moment. Because if you just treat all moments equally, then it's all a blur. So you pick a moment and you try to find as many details that are interesting as possible in that moment. Right. And then it gives you a way of savoring it for later. Yeah. I often think of my life as like I'm a curator of great moments. That's the way I sometimes try to think of it because, uh, you know, they're going to be 90% of moments are going to be boring. But if you can find those few moments and just collect them like a curator and keep them in your mental museum, that's a lovely way to live. Yeah. So, and did you learn this idea of being a curator of moments by doing this research on gratitude? I am going to say yes if it sells more books, but <laughs> but I actually had thought of it earlier. But uh, but it reinforced. And, this and have you been doing it? Yeah, yeah. That's the way I try to live. Like I will. I often when I read a book or or I do a podcast or listen to a podcast, I will try to pick one moment because I know if I don't pick that one moment to remember then the whole thing will just go away. So I'm going to pick one moment from today, I don't know what it is yet, to really remember and be like, wasn't that funny or wasn't that terrible? So so, so why'd you pick coffee for this book? Well, partly- I'll, I'll get to the stories, by the way, when you're, and no, the book's coming out in November, mm. you'll come back on in November and we'll talk about the actual stories Excellent, and, and, I got and gratitude of, and things like that. I but got, why'd you pick coffee? As well, opposed to your family or- uh, I don't know anything else. What other things? Well, my did you kids think of? did want, like, they wanted me to do s'mores because they thought, you know, we'll get a lot of s'mores in the house. But coffee, it seemed, first of all, I do love my cup of coffee. Second, you know, it employs like 200 million people in the world. It's the most drunk beverage. I could be making that up, but I'm pretty sure it's true. And, uh, and the, just the number of people who have to contribute to it is astounding. And, Everything is like that, but coffee especially because it's so global. You got the coffee beans. You got, uh, I visited a steel plant where they make the steel for like the trucks that carry the coffee and the stop signs. You know, you don't think about who makes the stop signs. What other stuff did you consider besides coffee and, and, and s'mores? Coffee, s'mores. Well, I, you know, I was like a light bulb, a pair of socks. It ah. could be anything. It doesn't have to be food. Because uh, everything we do has thousands of people behind it. Oh, and let me get back to my hypocrisy. Because remember, we were talking about the importance of a sole author. Well, one of the points in my book was that this idea of one person being responsible for 
a creative object is an illusion. Because for my book, for instance, it says on the cover, AJJ, thanks a thousand, AJ Jacobs. But really it should say, thanks a thousand by AJ Jacobs with my editor, the graphic designer, the researcher, the person who chose the fonts, the person who cut down the wood for the paper. You know, there are, my book would not exist without thousands of people. So this idea of one sole author is bad, and I think it's dangerous. It's a bad way to think about the world. So I, I think I've noticed with you through several books now, the process of you writing a book, it's not like you have all of the knowledge and wisdom in advance. You change, you yourself change as a result of writing the book. Like So now do you look at everything and kind of think of all the different people who might be behind everything? Oh yeah, I mean it is. And it definitely helps my life to think that way because it's like, you know. I also am, helps with problems. Like any problem can't be just your fault. That's true. That is true. Yeah, it is, a, <laughs> it is, a, it is freeing in that way that we are not alone. We are just, I, I have a chapter called Six Degrees of Gratitude and just this idea that everything depends on everything else. And even this was, it gets recursive because. The people who are in the steel factory were like, well, we couldn't do our job unless we were hopped up on coffee. So thank coffee for helping us make the steel. Ah, that's funny. Yeah, it was nice. So, so I mean, we'll, talk, we'll definitely talk more about this. You're, you're, are you done with the book? And now you're waiting for November for it to come out? Yeah, I mean, the hard part was actually thanking a thousand people. So it, uh, I, I still have a couple How long did of- it take? Well, every day I would wake up and I would just- visit people or call them or email them. And it was like, you know, some people were like, you know, I'd say, uh, they'd say like, what are you selling? Is this a pyramid scheme? What the hell is going on? Right, because people are suspicious of anyone who has, you know, just right. wants to just do something good for them, like thanking them exactly. with no ulterior motive. But some were very, most actually were very, um, very grateful and they would, it was like I would make an anti, it was like anti crank phone calls. Like I would, in middle school, I would call my headmaster and like, you know, say dirty things. This time I was like, uh, they would be like, you just made my day. And, uh, you know, it's not me, it's just anyone could do it. But it's just this. And I, I was so, uh, for me, it was so um, beneficial. Like I wasn't just helping them. I was, because I am, I think I'm more Larry David than Tom Hanks. Like I am default mode cranky and annoyed at everything. So I've never seen you cranky or annoyed. Well, that's because I am so good at faking gratitude until I actually feel it. So this was one of the big lessons. I would spend two hours calling and thanking people. And by the end, it, it had worked its magic. You know, this whole idea of fake it till you feel it. or um, and, and does gratitude really work? Does it really make you feel better? Like oh. scientists say, it reduces anxiety, it makes you feel content and have more well-being and happiness. I, yeah, I am just one data point, but for me, it is huge because I am, as I say, yeah, my default mode is to be annoyed at the world. And it's, that is not a good way to go through life. That's not a fun way to go through life. I mean, it's good in some senses for material because you do need a little annoyance at the way the world is. But, um, but yeah, this has made me a much happier person. So I always think about like all the high concept things you've done. So now it's gratitude, family, uh, Bible, uh, all of the world's knowledge, exercise, uh, you know, going through all your books. 
what's what's a what's a concept you've thought about tackling that you haven't yet or that you're thinking about now? Well, I've got a lot of rejected ones because as as we talked about, ninety percent of ideas suck. So uh, I had a lot of readers who had said, you know, you should become the greatest lover in the world and do all the positions in the Kama Sutra. And I actually brought it up with my wife, and she's like, "No fucking way!" That is like, and I have to Liter- agree. Literally, I gotta, no I gotta say, literally, there. Way. that's exactly right. <laughs> I and I agree with her. I'm too old. Like, I don't have the flexibility in my back for that. And um, and I actually, I talk about this in my health book. I have pretty low testosterone, which I thank God for, because if I had more testosterone and a higher sex drive. What the hell would I do with it? Like, what's the outlet for that? Nothing. Like, I get, you know, I get a certain amount. Well, a lot of people, you know, get more testosterone. <laughs> they yeah. do like kind of testosterone replacement therapy. Yeah, no, no, that's what I've considered, and some people have recommended, and I'm like, no way, because you know, then my sex drive would go up, and there's just no outlet for that aside from, like, you know, prostitutes or polyamory, which is not what I'm interested in. So uh, so I'm quite happy. I'm quite content. I'm very grateful for my low <laughs> testosterone. Who, what are the thousand people you were thanking for that? Like your <laughs> my parents, parents, your dad? Exactly. Something yeah. probably in the water that made my, uh, yeah, that increased my estrogen. Who knows? But uh, yeah, thank God. So I, that's a rejected idea? That was a rejected idea. Um, another rejected idea was, this was a while ago, so now it's almost, uh, it's almost a uh, part of life. But I wanted to do a project where I had no face-to-face communication. It was all electronic. So texting, IM, Skype, and uh, with my kids too. So I would like raise my kids by Skype. And uh, I thought that was interesting. But my wife again was like, no, because you're not. So going. she's the first, she's the first editor. She is the first editor. Right. Exactly. Uh, so that was one. Um, yeah, there are a ton. I'm trying to think of another one. Uh, wait, I had a good one there for a second, but I forgot it. Uh, oh, well, this one I still think would be interesting, but I just ne- never got around to it. I would, you know, I think drones and robots would are, are changing our lives tremendously. So I would be interested in like having like my drone life or my robotic life, where everything is done by drone. So you know, I would instead of hanging with my kid I would I would get a drone to like go into his bedroom and I could read to him through the drone while still like relaxing in my bed. That's funny. Uh so yeah, if anyone out there wants to try that. I feel like that's another one like the communication one where that'll go quickly out of date just because technology like that probably will happen in like 5 years or 10 years or whatever. Oh yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I often there there are pros and cons to this technology revolution. But one is, you know, when my kids go off to, uh, you know, live in Kuala Lumpur or whatever, like it really won't matter in that in 10 years you'll have on your headset and you can have dinner with them like like they're right yeah, there. Yeah, like what about what about living for a year entirely in a virtual reality? I thought of I actually bought virtual reality for just that idea and I've I haven't gotten around to it but I want to cuz it's weird like you're in there for just like 10 minutes and you take off your little VR mask and it's like like a jolt you're like what the hell 
this this reality sucks. And you like, probably don't have to do a year. You could probably do a month, and that's yeah. interesting to write a book. Well, I think just a week. I mean, there are stories of people who get physically ill. Like if you're in it too long, you get physically ill. But I would love it. I think it'd be really interesting. And, uh, and you could probably break a world record longest time in a virtual reality. I like it. So, Will you join me? Come in. All right. All right. If you do it, I'll I'll be a participant. That would be good. Because there are all these games where you know you can we can shoot at each other. Yeah. But we can like we can have die a podcast, over and over again. A VR podcast. Yeah, yeah, we can do a podcast in the virtual reality. Mm-hmm. All right, what's another idea? Mm. Let's see, what were some of the others? I'm just trying to well, think this of one, what to steal. This, yeah, this idea I actually liked, but I never got around to it, so you feel free to steal. Um, but it was basically like, you know, spam, taking every spam, so, you know, actually going to Nigeria and meeting the prince, you know, and trying to figure out how I can get my 14 million. I love this, that's a good idea. Um, and to trying all the penis enlargement Devices and uh, yeah, that I think it's a fun idea. It 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 didn't seem like uh, that it would yield enough profound insights to change my life, which I like to do. Like something that is kind of I don't of know, funny. but the, like the Prince of Nigeria thing, like going to visit that person and seeing you know they're poor living in a shack or I don't right. know. I mean, they could be wealthy because of the spam working. But and, maybe the ethical thing to do would be to give them money just because they have so much less than we do. So. Yeah. Yeah, it would be nice to know. Uh, so yeah, feel free to do that. The spam, living my life, living spam. Well, AJ, I I want to say first, this is an advanced advertisement for your book on gratitude. You'll come on again, and we'll talk about the specific stories and Bless more you. things to be grateful available for. Available for pre-order on Amazon. Thanks. It's, it's available now. For, yeah. For pre-order. Oh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna get it. <laughs> I'm gonna probably get you a free copy. And living biblically, I watched, and uh, I feel bad it was canceled, but it was definitely not the same as your book. Well, thank you. And, and, uh, and although again, I love the actors, and Tony yes. Rock was great, and, and and the producers were lovely and wonderful. It just TV is a crazy sausage fact. Is that the right word? A TV, I don't know. It beats is there anything all the you could humor. have done differently? Yeah, it beats all the humor out of uh, at least broadcast television. Like, could you have done? Could you have done it any other way? Could you have sold it to Netflix and been more creative with it? I think Netflix, yeah. Like HBO or Netflix would have been much better. Did HBO bid for it? No, they just took it to the networks. Mm. Uh, So that's interesting. But I don't know. The other thing I want to point out is I could definitely not have done better. If I had written the scripts, they would have sucked so much more. So... uh, Why do you think that? Because you don't think you're a screenwriter? Yeah, I just don't like telling... I mean, I with with a few years of practice, I could probably do it, but it's just not the genre I'm used to. Have you ever thought about writing fiction? I have you. Yeah. Oh yeah, you have written fiction. I have written fiction, and I was gonna do a novel last year, but I switched my interest to mm-hmm. stand-up comedy in 2017. Which I love. I'm a big fan of your stand-up. Yeah. You have you have you have to come again at some point. I to, know. I've heard the act has changed. The act has changed considerably. It changes I, every few weeks. I love that. So. And now, now that I've been recently engaged, it focuses completely on that, at least for the next few weeks. Interesting. Okay, I need that. 
So, but AJ, thanks once again for exploring your creative process with us and teaching us about gratitude and TV and always so much more. Thank you, James. And thanks to your parents for having sex so that they produced you and your grandparents as well. For, for reluctantly, have, like for barely <laughs> tolerating each other enough to have me. For my grandparents, for, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to they yeah the same they thing. did it they did it too <laughs> they uh, all barely tolerated each other they had back then because everybody just married their neighbors right so, yeah it was not good so whoever moved made the decision to have them move next to each other <laughs> <laughs> well I love I I love coming on so anytime you want me I'm here excellent well thanks again AJ and see you soon see you soon James.